Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn just a few different forms of decolonization. But before we get started, I will explain what I mean by decolonization. But before I do that, I'm going to back up even further for context, because I love context. Today's episode is about uh, Native people, specifically, and the decolonization movement amongst Native people in North America. And so this episode is... is uh, part of a series, a very loose series that I've been doing for more than a year. It started back with Columbus Day 2018, so more than a year ago, with episode number 1216, taking a different look at uh, Columbus Day because Columbus was terrible. Uh, next up was number 1230, looking at Thanksgiving, sort of going in historical, chronological order. So looking at Thanksgiving and the cultural heritage that came from that. Uh, next up, of course, was uh, westward expansion, the, the first steps of American imperialism. Uh, the next one up was 1265, which was a, a more complicated and, and nuanced one, talking about the, the fact that a lot of white people don't seem to know is that Native people are not gone. They, they didn't uh, disappear. They weren't wiped out. Attempted, sure, but they're actually still here. And, and so 1265 was titled Moving Beyond Tragedy by Surviving and Adapting, meaning that Native people are still here. They're in a slightly different form than when Europeans came and met them originally, but they're still here and, and they've survived by adapting. And then the most recent one was 1283, uh, following up to, hey, everyone, look at this, Native people still exist, to pointing out that uh, sure, they exist, but they are horribly, horribly misrepresented, most often in pop culture, but in other ways as well. And, and so following up to that, again, sort of in historical chronological order, okay, so they've survived, they've adapted, what's next? What's next is decolonization. So that's what today's episode is about, but all the episodes I just mentioned, uh, I'm going to be publishing republishing all of them in this coming week. You know, we're all going to be driving off to visit our families and pretend that we're taking part in a glorious tradition stemming from the pilgrims. Uh, so, so I'm going to put all those back in the feed for easy access. If you want to uh, use them for some road trip binging, uh, and that way you can brush up on your native history and get to Thanksgiving and yell at all your family members and call them colonial beneficiaries of genocide. Kidding. I mean, slightly kidding. I, I don't think that would actually be helpful. You may want to mention, though, that many Native people see this holiday as a day of mourning, though, just so no one starts talking about what a good time the Pilgrims and the Indians had with each other. Uh, stick with being thankful and appreciating family. That is certainly allowed. Just don't pretend that the tradition has noble origins. Okay, decolonization. Uh, first of all, decolonization is not the wish to revert back to pre-contact life. All the white people get pushed back to Europe. All the natives live in their traditional dwellings. They all turn off the electricity and live off the land. Uh, wipe that image from your mind. That is not what we're talking about. So if colonization, especially the genocidal style we had here in the Americas, you know, if it's not just about taking land and resources, but is also about wiping out people's in their entirety, or, or failing that, attempting to wipe out their culture and forcing assimilation, then decolonization is about reasserting those cultures and traditions that were nearly lost 
and reestablishing them in a modern context. So I don't want anyone getting panicky and defensive about, you know, what what are native people going to try to take away from me and how are they going to mistreat me and where are they going to try to send me? All of that is completely off base. And I want to highlight one of the most important lines that you're going to hear during today's show. I just want to emphasize it now to put some of those, you know, the fears that white fragility puts in us, uh, just put those fears to rest while also calling you to action. So to paraphrase, referring to the history of European contact with Native Americans and, and all that followed, the point being made in the show is that it's not your fault and no one is saying that it is because you weren't there then. However, it is your responsibility to deal with it because you are here now. So just like feminism is for men too, and anti-racism is good for white people, decolonization is for everyone. So now that we have that cleared up, onto the show. Clips today come from The Laura Flanders Show, Native America Calling, Tiny Spark, and a TED Talk by Nikki Sanchez. Money. Today's guest says it is basically Kleenex adorned with dead presidents. But we can't deny it has power. So can we use money in ways that are healthier? Or is it inevitable that it uses us? My next guest says that turning to Native America may just hold the key to our modern ailments. Edgar Villanueva, a rare Native American voice in the world of philanthropy, has a book coming out, Decolonizing Wealth, which delves into all this and more. What if money could be medicine instead of what divides us, he asks. Edgar, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So how the heck did you go from being on your way to being a minister to being <laughs> a program officer at a foundation? How did it happen? Well, you know, in, in many ways, it's not a stretch. I think I've always been inclined to service, um, wanting to help others. Ideally, um, or initially growing up, my my church was a major place of focus in my community and in my family. And it was the only vehicle that I knew of at that time to help people because it was a place where I had received help. Um, I later learned that there was a nonprofit sector and this, you know, many other avenues and ways to support folks. But I think the the essence of the church and the faith community is very connected to the mission of philanthropy in terms of loving others and helping others. So you go in loving others, helping others. You feel pretty good for a moment while you're in there. But this book is a devastating <laughs> takedown of philanthropy, which you call a, a, a living anachronism, a contradiction in terms, just a place where white people give away stolen money and feel better about it afterwards. I mean, these turned out to be not just your own feelings about philanthropy, but a whole lot of people that you interview. Absolutely. Um, the point of the book is to be a bit provocative and to cause a conversation about how we can be better. Um, I have lived and worked within philanthropy for 14 years and have, you know, personally seen beyond some of the um, altruistic facade, so to speak, into the shadows. And so um, philanthropy has a culture where we often have an extreme politeness. 
because we're good folks doing good work. And a lot of that work is, is very good. And I should not, you know, I will not discredit that. Um, however, uh, there's a lot that could be changed. And I think of philanthropy as my family, but there's some dysfunction there that as, uh, as I would with my own family, I want to call out that dysfunction and call us to a place of being better. Now, a, a core part of your story is about being Native American in philanthropy and being young when you entered the field. Talk a bit about what you learned about what was common in your experience being a one of a kind in an institution like that. Uh, what was common with other people who had who were brought in kind of as I don't want to say tokens, but they were kind of alone in their fields. Absolutely. And I and I think tokens is an adequate description for many of us. The field often likes to hire people like me who come from the community with lived experience and uh you know, sometimes to check a box and there are a lot of uh, diversity initiatives. And I think the intentions are well-meaning, but often we don't have a culture within the field that supports um, our ability to be successful in the space. And so after coming into philanthropy and working for a number of years, I began to see that the way the culture was inside of the institution um, did not always mirror the state admission, right, of the organization. Yes, so give us an example. So I think when you look at the values of stated values that a lot of foundations have around equity, justice, um, really, you know, moving the needle on certain social issues, but you look who are calling the shots and designing those initiatives and how uh, exclusive that table is. And you also look at who is receiving those resources. You see a lot of um, inequality there. I mean, one of the shocking things that you say is that many of the members of the board have appeals, have requests pending at the institutions that they are the board of, and they're very rarely rejected. Absolutely. So, you know, there are... Um, there are lots of most people tend to like to fund people who look like them or people that they know, um, people that they have relationships with and trust. And uh, if you don't have people who are not in your network who don't look like you or come from the same type of place, then uh, those folks are less likely to have the same type of access to funding. Okay, so people should read the book if they want to hear the chapter and verse of what went on there. It wasn't altogether pretty, but you do kind of dust yourself off. And the majority of the book is dedicated to what could be done differently. Absolutely. Um, give us some of the examples or some of the strategies. For one thing, you see there needs to be an apology. And you describe a scene with a lot of philanthropists in, I think it was North Carolina, where a young white guy gets up and does exactly that, kind of cops to his history. Can, can you describe that moment and what it meant to you? Sure. So uh, the particular moment you're describing, uh, a young man at a funders conference uh, got up to make a presentation and he began sharing uh, his presentation. His remarks included sharing that he had uh, been a descendant of a, a great grandfather who owned slaves. And he wanted to acknowledge that history and apologize for it. And so a simple apology, of course, cannot undo the years of traumatization that, that slavery, genocide, colonization has caused. But I think when we get to a place where we can apologize and acknowledge that, um, what role our families may have played in that process, it at least gets us to a place where we can begin to move on in some kind of way. And so I think for philanthropy, 
um, understanding that the resources that we have were often um, accumulated in ways that cause trauma, especially in communities of color. And so when we acknowledge that history, we learn about it, first of all, because so many don't know. Uh, we learn about the history and we acknowledge that. Um, and then we begin to apply that lens to how we're distributing resources. It could really be transformational. Why not just give the money back? Why not just give the land back? That's often a, a point that is made. Just just give it back. You know, I, I, I like that point, actually. Um, but I think when we think about decolonization as a political process, which literally means to give the land back, to reinstate rights, maybe some people leave and, you know, uh, settlers leave and go back to their countries of origin. Uh, it really gets stuck as a political process because in the 21st century America, there really is no uh, reality, uh, I believe, where we're, we're not going to be together, right? Our businesses are intertwined. Our families are intertwined at this point. And so I think the best path forward is for us to recognize the uh, shared trauma that colonization has caused, not only for people of color, but for white people. Um, and think about how we can come together in uh, a collective healing process. So how can we? Can we? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really believe that we can. Um, I'll be honest, my, the, 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 the book tells my personal story of sort of coming to terms with that reality. Um, especially post election, I was feeling a lot of hurt, um, devastated like many around the results of the election. And, um, I did not think of people who voted for Trump, for example, as my relatives or my brothers and sisters, right? And I spent some time in, in a community talking to an elder who said to me, Edgar, those folks are your relatives. That's our value. You have to love them. You have to see them as your brothers and sisters, even though they're making choices that may harm you. Even though they're showing up in the streets with, you know, blood and soil signs? Absolutely. I think we have to be, we have to acknowledge that hurting people hurt others. And I'm not saying that we have to, um, of course, condone their behavior or um, it, it's it's unjustified. But I think if we can see that all of us are suffering in, in su at some level and begin to create ways to be less polarized, to come together in some type of circle, um, we can begin to think of ways to move forward together. So does that look like foundations going through that process and funding coming together projects? I think so. There are some foundations who are, are doing, uh, you know, funding initiatives in, in that way, sort of radical solidarity um, or finding ways to support uh, coming together across the divides. But I also think foundations can um, fund sort of the healing or reversal of the traumatization that colonization has caused. And when I talk about colonization, we kind of think of like hundreds of years ago, right? Um, and I am referring to that type of colonization that has resulted in generations of trauma on communities. But I also mean, you know, history as early as yesterday, mm -hmm. because colonization ultimately is about dividing, controlling, exploiting, separating. And so when we look at what's happening right now in our country, we see that there's still a lot of th those tactics are in play to harm communities of color and um, those who are less resourced. And so I think philanthropy could be really intentional about moving its resources in ways that uh, facilitate coming together.
Today we have uh, Edgar Villanueva. He's the author of Decolonizing Wealth and the chair of the Board of Directors of Native Americans in Philanthropy. And he is Lumbee. Edgar, um, before the break, we were talking a little bit about how you first got into uh, philanthropy and um, giving away money. And so, so you you describe in the book some some challenges that you faced when you started um, working in this organization, and uh, I imagine that you started to reach out to other people of color who were working in philanthropy because you have throughout the book different um, quotes from folks. What were you hearing from them about the challenges that they faced inside an institution like this? I began to understand as I was talking to other people of color and other natives who work in philanthropy that my challenges were um, shared across the field, which was uh, very much a relief. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm not crazy. It is something that is more systemic and institutional uh, because, you know, again, these organizations were not built for us. We they, The culture of these organizations often are not designed in ways that make it easy for us to thrive. Uh, these are legacy organizations in many cases that, uh, of wealth and wealth that was accumulated in ways that have been harmful to our communities and harmful to the land. And so to be on the inside of that and to try to make some good of it and redirect resources or to try to disrupt things in, in some kind of way, you often get pointed out as an outlier and then pushed out of the field. So it's, it's very challenging for, for many of us. Yeah, I, I saw this comic one time, and it was it was specifically about nonprofits and how um, nonprofits will say to themselves, uh, "We need more, more diversity here," and so then they go out with this quote unquote diversity hire, and they bring people of color into the organization, and then the people of color start challenging the long held ideas, uh, maybe like the white savior complex, where um, we are here to save all of you people, things like that, and then suddenly there's there's this pushback uh, that's that's happening that's like um you need to fit in the culture here you're too outspoken there's a better way to go about um addressing these issues and then that person of color leaves the organization and then the conversation starts again we need more diversity around here is that what you were seeing in philanthropy it's absolutely the case we have um I would say in, in over the past 10 years, the number of people of color and, and indigenous folks that work in philanthropy has increased, but uh, folks do not stay very long. There's major turnover because to really kind of sit it out and stay in these organizations, you are going to be pushing against a very dominant type of culture that is going to feel, um, you know, uh, really outside um, for, for many of us. So that is that is absolutely the case. We have a diversity problem. Um, but beyond that, we have a cultural problem of a, a very white dominant culture um, that uh, exists in these institutions because of their desire to, um, in many ways, maintain control and dominance over how these funds are used. Can you give some like concrete examples of of those problematic things? So some of the problematic things that I begin to uh, experience or understand as I worked in philanthropy, um, one is if you if you look at the data of where money is actually going, we hear you know we see marketing campaigns from foundations and we hear about large gifts that are given to various nonprofits, 
And on the surface, this seems like a good thing, right? It's not it's not a bad thing to, to give money away or to support a charity or a nonprofit. Um, but when you look at the data of where money is going, um, only about 7 to 8% of all foundation grants are going into, into uh, communities of color. And as you said in the opening um, comments, only less than a third of 1% are going into uh, Native communities. And so when you think about how this wealth was accumulated in our history through stolen lands and genocide and the enslavement of folks and the exploitation of the land. Um, these corporations and families amassed this wealth, and now our, our communities are not benefiting. Just crumbs um, of grants are actually making their way to our communities. And when you question about, when you bring those questions to the table and you begin to push back um, on those ideas about why and how can we change that, um, you often are seen as a problem of someone who's trying to sort of disrupt the way things are. Yeah, I mean, Edgar, though, I can imagine that that is a really challenging thing to do to sit down with somebody, um, particularly if they're actually like related to one of these families and say, uh, this was built on the backs of genocide and you need to make some different choices about that. I mean, how do you even begin to have a conversation like that without, I don't know, hurting people's feelings or, um, you know, sounding like some kind of crazy radical? (laughs) No, you're exactly right. Um, And I get asked that question quite a bit because the approach is definitely not to confront some a person of wealth and say that's not your money or you owe us this money. (laughs) Um, But I do think there, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with very wealthy folks uh, and some of the top one percent of the one percent and have some of these conversations. What we lack in this country is uh, a basic understanding of our history. Many very educated folks. Um, know that bad things have happened, but have not been in a position um, to fully understand or know how to respond. Um, wealthy folks often carry guilt and um, frustration around actually having uh, wealth and not knowing how they can use their resources and wealth to give back in a way that's meaningful. And so my approach with this book is to share that history uh, packaged with love and understanding, um, as is sort of the native way of all my relations. Like, let's, let's have a conversation about how we're very, we're actually a lot more alike than we are different. You may have pain in your life and, you know, we have pain and trauma in our communities. Is there a way that we can get together and talk about healing or have a conversation about resources being allocated more equitably that's going to really benefit you and benefit our communities. And that approach and that type of conversation has been um, welcomed all around the country. Is there, um, is it just trying to get these organizations to give more money to native organizations or um, organizations that are run by people of color in general? Or are there other parts to decolonizing philanthropy and, and decolonizing wealth? There are other parts to it. I mean, that is definitely, I think, when we look at the outcome or the impact of doing this work, we should see a major shift in where money is going. But we also have to zoom out and actually understand what what philanthropy and foundations are even all about in this country. Um, the fact that we have a tax system that allows people to amass so much wealth and then start these foundations is something that I think we all should be questioning and examining a little bit closer. Um, 
you may know that there are um, now over 100,000 foundations in this country. The majority of those foundations, about 80% of those foundations, were started in the last 10 years. And that's because we have a loophole um, in policy in this, in this country that allows for a wealthy corporation or family, um, in lieu of paying taxes, they can start a foundation. And then there's so little accountability about where those dollars are going or how they're invested um, the majority of foundation assets, which is about $800 billion of funds that foundations are sitting on, the majority of those funds are actually not ever even touching the community. Um, there's no requirements that they, um, you know, more, no more than 5% um, um, leave the foundation. The majority of those assets are actually invested in Wall Street, which are then, um, you know, potentially invested in extractive, extractive and harmful industries that are hurting our communities. And so to me, this is a public policy issue beyond the grant making, which is important, but also the fact that there are tax sheltered um, assets, um, you know, around $800 billion that are not serving any of any of us. We're talking with Edgar Villanueva today. He's the author of Decolonizing Wealth, and he is Lumbee. Uh, Edgar, it sounds like you have a problem with capitalism. <laughs> you know, I, 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 there are. I know that capitalism is not working for everyone, right? Um, it is. We are uh, the system as it is is, is helping uh, some folks get richer, and that 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 gap between the haves and the have-nots is seem to seems to be ever increasing. What I often uh, direct folks to in the conversation, because I'm not an economist, um, I pull a quote from Malcolm X, who said that you can't have capitalism without racism. And I think that, you know, capitalism is problematic, but we often go there because of um, an unwillingness to actually talk about white supremacy and racism, which is really undergirding that system in many ways. It's unsurprising, I think, that there's a strong bias on who edits Wikipedia and how they edit it and what they edit. So there's a bias in content as well as in contributor base. We know that 80% of the content on Wikipedia is edited by 20% of the world, primarily those from Europe and North America. We also know that only one in nine or 10 editors self-identifies as female. So Sengupta and her colleague Adeli Vrana are looking to change that. Vrena is Afro-Brazilian and has a background in community organizing and nonprofits. She worked with Sengupta at the Wikimedia Foundation. They say that less than a quarter of Wikipedia biographies represent women. And many biographies of notable women don't exist or are incomplete. And they say one of the main challenges is the lack of images. Sengupta and Vrena estimate that less than 20% of Wikipedia articles of important women have pictures. So today, in partnership with organizations across the globe, they are launching hashtag VisibleWikiWomen, a campaign to bring more faces and more biographies of notable women around the world onto Wikipedia. Women like Marielle Franco, a 38-year-old Afro-Brazilian councilwoman from Rio de Janeiro. She rose from poverty and was fighting for the rights of people in the slums of Rio. And then she was assassinated a year ago. After her death, Vrena says she was shocked and wanted to learn more about her fellow Afro-Brazilian. 
I decided to go to Wikipedia and see if that she had like an article of her own. And to my surprise, she did have a Wikipedia article with her picture and a beautiful picture. But Rena soon discovered that the Wikipedia entry had just gone up on the site. In fact, a Brazilian editor told her that the page had only appeared on Wikipedia the morning after Franco was gunned down. Before she was assassinated, the same editor, he tried to write an article about her. And the other editors marked that page for deletion, alleging that Marielle Franco was not notable enough to have her own Wikipedia page. And that's a really sad example, because we don't need to die to have our own entries, to be seen, to be noted, to be acknowledged. So it was a really painful example and something that gives even more strength and energy during the campaign, right? We want to honor Marielle Franco and all the other women that came before her that are not visible and not acknowledged. To do that, Rena and Sengupta left Wikipedia and formed Who's Knowledge, which works to center marginalized voices on the net. And they are now working to enrich Wikipedia pages with allies across the globe. We work in partnerships with all of these groups across the Wikimedia movement, whether it is AfroCrowd, which looks at bringing the content of African-American and the African diaspora onto Wikipedia. We work with Art and Feminism, which looks at bringing artists onto Wikipedia. Black Lunch Table, which looks at bringing Black artists onto Wikipedia. Women in Red, which is about bringing female-identified biographies and women onto Wikipedia. And Wikimujeres, who does it in Spanish, Wikidona that does it in Italian, and various other versions of this around the world. We do it in companionship. But Sengupta says all of them are up against Wikipedia's editing process, which often vets entries, deciding who is quote-unquote notable and who is not, largely based on the secondary sources that affirm, yeah, this person is a big enough deal to be included in our encyclopedia. Just think of all those footnotes you see when you're reading a Wikipedia entry. You click on them and see the number of times this person was mentioned in, say, the mainstream media. Or you can see all the places their work has been published in newspapers, books, peer-reviewed journals, that sort of thing. The process seems innocuous enough. The problem lies in the fact that our academic publishing world, our media, is all biased in the ways that we know it to be, that there are not enough women in these worlds. There's not enough awareness of how the content in these worlds then gets skewed towards a primarily male or Western perspective. And then what we see as reliable sources is also defined by power and privilege. So just to give you another example of my first Wikipedia article, I wrote a Wikipedia article on Bisi Adilei Fayemi, who is a wonderful, extremely inspiring Nigerian feminist who set up the first pan-African funding organization for women's human rights in Africa. And so really notable, lots of people talk about BC. There are lots of newspaper articles about her. So I thought, great, I can write a, an article on BC and no one will delete it because, you know, lots of people talk about BC. So I write this article, which is about four lines. It's called a stub, a short, small article that other people can improve with about 11 references. And it's marked for speedy deletion within five minutes. 
Wow. And the reason is not exactly, exactly right. <laughs> that is the response I had. Wow. <laughs> and the reason is not because I didn't have references, but because the person didn't believe my references were also reliable enough. And so you have multiple versions of sort of institutionalized systemic bias. They're unintentional. Wikipedians are good people. They're well-intentioned. They want to make the world better through making a better encyclopedia. But if you're sitting in North America or Europe and you think of your local newspaper as being New York Times or Der Spiegel, you're not going to look at a Nigerian newspaper and say, oh, that's the newspaper that, you know, BC is mentioned in. That's reliable. And yet Nigeria is one of the largest countries in the world. And so the national newspaper of Nigeria should essentially be a reliable source, right? But again, this is where our limited knowledge of the world and our limited sort of self-awareness of some of our own biases come in. And so one of the things we're doing with all our friends across the Wikimedia movement is to help us uncover these biases and say, how can we do better? And in fact, you refer to it sometimes as the colonization of knowledge or? Yeah, we, we call it decolonizing the internet. Mm. <laughs> so we, in fact, you know, this is a moment in which I'm very grateful to so many inspiring people and organizations around the world who are re-examining the notion of decolonization and looking at it in the ways we do, which is sort of hacking at the structures of power and privilege, both historical and ongoing. And for us, our question is, what does this look like on the internet? What does it look like to make sure that the majority of the world is not just on the internet, because 75% of those who are online are from the global south, and yet we don't see that reflected on the internet. 45% of all women are online, and yet we don't see that reflected on the internet. So on March 8th, on International Women's Day, how do we make sure that women's histories and knowledges are online? How do we make sure that black and brown women's histories and knowledges are online? How do we make sure that women's histories in their local languages are online? That for us is decolonizing the internet. Mm. Anna Suya, I want to ask you about something that I, I read about you in an article. It said that at some point you began realizing the colonial roots of your own education, and that what ensued was kind of a personal journey for you, as it was described in the article, decolonizing your own sense of self-worth. Can you talk to me a little bit about that process, both of discovering the colonial ties in your own life, in your own education, and then how you went about decolonizing your own sense of self-worth? Thanks for that question, Amy. It's a, it's a deep one. So I'll see if I can do it justice. Um, it's always a work in process and a work in progress. Our friend Valle from Bosnia calls it work in process. And I love that. So where do I begin? I think essentially as someone who grew up in India in a very middle class family, but with what is called so called upper caste, Privilege. So I'm a Savarna, which means I was born into an upper caste family in the 
horrific caste system that exists in India and has existed for millennia. And I had privilege from being an upper caste woman. I had disprivilege from being a woman. And I had privilege from being English educated. I had disprivilege from not necessarily having the money to study further if I didn't get a scholarship, right? So all of us have these, based on context, we have power or we are disempowered. Each one of us, no matter where we comes from. And the inner journey began for me recognizing that what I was reading growing up as a child in India was primarily literature from the US and the UK. I was reading Ursula Le Guin. I was reading Asimov. I was reading Enid Blyton and so on and such forth. So I was reading very much that sort of literature, both fiction and nonfiction coming out of Europe and North America. And then I started questioning that. I started questioning, where is my literature? Where is the literature that doesn't look at kids eating crumpets or, I don't know, drinking ginger ale? Where's the literature that looks at doshas and samosas, right? And that was my beginning. And then I started reading the theorists coming out of Africa and Black America. I started reading Fanon. I started reading Stuart Hall. I started reading, again, to honor our incredible feminists on this day, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Gloria Anzaldúa. I started reading all of them and the ones coming out of my own ancestry. And as I read all of them, I realized in order to decolonize or in order to accompany others in a decolonizing journey, I had to start with my own and be open about my own. Indigenous cartographers are redrawing maps to include native names and traditional knowledge. It's one of the ways to counter colonial maps that throughout history established boundaries and borders at the expense of indigenous people. Native people have a long history of map making as a tool to better understand their world and relate to the land. Now, contemporary cartographers are using everything from artistic maps to the latest interactive technology to create a broader understanding of how Native people relate to their surroundings. Today, we're discussing the importance and influence of maps. We'll also hear about examples of traditional maps and the steps needed to expand how we think of them. You're welcome to join the conversation, too. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also one 800 99Native. Today, we're going to start off in Eureka, California, and we're going to say hello to Anna Lucchese. She's a PhD student at the University of Arizona and the executive director of Sovereign Bodies Institute. And she is Cheyenne. It's our pleasure to have her for another program. Anita, welcome. Thank you. And so, Anita, maps. Um, there's a lot to be said, and I hope we say a lot of it today on the program, of what they really mean to us as Indigenous people. And so let's start there. Why do you feel maps are significant? And maybe what's wrong with the maps that most people are familiar with, especially the ones you pull up on your phone? Well, I think that 
we get taught that mapping is something that's inherently colonial. I know I was taught that even as a geography student studying geography in college, when the reality is that every culture around the world has always been creating maps. Maps have been used to support colonization of indigenous peoples and used to support violence against our communities, but we've also always been map makers ourselves. Um, maps are pieces of art that tell stories about the land and the people and the beings that are on them and their relationships to each other. We've always done that. That's part of who we are. So it's an honor for me as an indigenous map maker to kind of reclaim that history and those practices as something that uh, do belong to us. And Anna, uh, Anita, why is it that a lot of our maps, if you even want to call them that, are dismissed? Well, I think that there's um, a lot of ignorance about what counts as a map um, and what uh, counts as technology, when the reality is that Indigenous peoples have been um, creating all sorts of amazing uh, technology and maps for time immemorial, Um, and there's all sorts of examples of that. Um, One of the examples I like to share is... um, There's a famous map um, done by uh, a Clinkett leader in Alaska uh, in the late or mid to late 1800s, and it covers over 500 miles of interior trade routes in five different languages and actually maps the trade routes by uh, travel time rather than by um, distance, like miles. So it's actually a lot more useful to people on the ground as they're traveling and has so much knowledge in it. Um, So I think that's a really powerful example of Indigenous map making and the traditions that we've had about telling stories about the land using maps. And talk to me a little bit about it's about stories and, and also why our maps get dismissed because they have to do with stories and how we relate to the land. I think our maps get dismissed not only because um, they're stories, but because uh, settler colonial whether it's governments or academic institutions, they just for a long time, and in some cases still do, don't want to see Indigenous people as capable of telling our own stories and as capable of doing our own science. Um, And so, for example, the map from Alaska that I mentioned, that sat in an archive at UC Berkeley in California for um, over 100 years, and uh, nobody ever did anything with it or acknowledged it. And we're continuing to say, um, well, Native people don't make maps. Even me, as a young Indigenous cartographer, I was told Native people are oral cultures. We don't make maps. And that's not true. But those maps were purposefully hid away. Uh, Also here with us from Zuni is Jim Enote. Uh, He is the CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation. And he is Zuni. Our pleasure to have him here for another one of our discussions. Jim, welcome. Well, thank you, Tara. It's good to be back. And Jim, let's start with, um, you know, the purpose of a map. What do you like to say? Well, maps, well, I've been making maps for over 50 years, ever since I was drawing in sand. But uh, I think maps are really vital to Native peoples as a way of ordering knowledge about place. And, well, I think that 
now it is also really about confronting some asymmetries of power. You know, there's the, the power of geography and mathematics and cartography in a sense that most people know about, but I think that there's a statement to be made of our competency as Native peoples that we can and are making maps using sophisticated digital systems as well as anyone else in the world. But there's also another sphere of consciousness to consider. And through, for example, through art, that is like through ceramics or weavings, even the old uh, rock art, petroglyph kinds of things, and songs, and, and as well as prayers, that through that art, we are, we are able to describe and order not only place, but circumstance. And this involves uh, some sensibilities of color, of pattern language, the channels and silos of knowledge, and how we sum the total of cosmology. And that's it's really a braiding of beliefs and earthly experience. This is very different from conventional map-making. And it's it's something that I think is now no longer a kind of project for people to make maps. Native peoples are now involved in a kind of movement. A project has a beginning and an end, where the idea of creating native maps is really a kind of movement that is continuing. Uh, With us today is Anna Lucchese. And uh, she is a student at the University of Arizona, also the executive director of the Sovereign Bodies Institute. She's Cheyenne. Our pleasure to have her here. And from Zuni Pueblo, we have Jim Enote, CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation and a proud farmer. Uh, thank you both for being here with us. And Jim, talk to us a little bit about the Zuni Map Project and how it really is um, taking things in the direction so that your community can understand a map. Right. Well, this goes back to what I was saying before, that you do not necessarily have to be a technician to make maps. And and this idea has spread, actually, from Zuni to, to many other communities now throughout the Colorado Plateau in the southwest, but also throughout North and Central and South America and to other places as well. But But really, it's I think what it is is that people can look at maps in ways that they're beautiful. And I remember one time making a map, and it was shared with Grand Canyon National Park. It was it was a, a computerized map, which is very important. And it was shared with them, and they, they looked at it, and they said, great, they put it in a drawer where they kept many other maps. But some years later, we created a map that was painted. It was painted involving religious leaders and artists, and it, it, it really represented vignettes of, of knowledge about place. And we turned those into posters, and we shared one of those with uh, with the Grand Canyon National Park. And they looked at it and said, oh, my goodness, we need to get a frame for this. So it had a different impact, not only for Zuni, where Zunis would look at the, these these maps and say, well, it's, you know, it's beautiful. Um, and they appreciate the, the, the technical aspect of it, how the use of color and the space. But also it, they became evocative. Where, where people began to share and say, the aunt would, as some auntie would say something about what's in this this image. Uh, uncle would say something, and people started talking about what's happening in there. So I think these kinds of maps, map art, really is what we're talking about. is is also not only just about land. It's really about how we share the space that we live in. What is below us? What is above us in the sky? What lives in the earth's waters, and so on. It's 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 a way of ordering our knowledge of space 
and can be a rallying point and reference for people as well. And so describe a little bit about this project and how uh, artists went about interpreting how to maneuver with the land. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, but, uh, uh, and, I, and I advise people in other communities, just don't do this immediately, because first thing you have to do is think about and consider what not to map. And I remember that we had negotiated with uh, religious leaders and other keepers of important knowledge uh, about what would be appropriate to be represented. And that took about a year of negotiating and discussing that. And then uh, we put out a call for artists uh, to participate, and uh, we asked for pencil sketches, and some some people uh, provided examples that were really with lines, and uh, north was at the top, there was a legend. We, we thought, no, that's not really what we're talking about. But other artists would provide a, a sketch with, again, these kind of vignettes, and this, this idea of what is above, what is below, and and we said, that's what we're talking about. That's that's the way of, that we're really ordering knowledge this way about space. And so then we would take the religious leaders out to important places along with the artists. The religious leaders would describe the events and circumstances of that place, why it is important. The artists would take notes and start sketching. And then we would turn them loose to create the maps. And then what did you get? Well, we we started with three maps, and uh, those became such a hit uh, that the collection eventually grew to 32, 34. I, I believe it's probably approaching 40 maps now. Uh, but they are maps, um, they're two-dimensional, but they are maps painted in, um, with uh, watercolors, with oils, with uh, uh, many different media. But they are... They're so powerful, and I think this is the other thing about maps, is to rep- remembering that they are, maps are powerful, that if you're not careful, they can create mayhem. They can lie, and they can work against you. But if you're creating them yourselves, with people from your own space, they can have a tremendous impact. And as I said, they can be evocative. They can bring people back to thinking about space and how we order knowledge and how important it is to, again, to think about what not to map all of these important matters of of, I think, um, negotiating and being careful about and and respecting who has knowledge and who has access to those kinds of knowledge. But uh, we also added uh, place names onto those, which is an odd thing, a difficult thing to do, because many people aren't uh, comfortable with writing Zuni language. Some are very good at it. Some consider it very helpful. Uh, But find the right way to spell it and put it into a, a... a written form is difficult because we've, we haven't had a written language for many years, but you know, thank goodness to many important Zuni experts, we do have that now. But it also uh, made us think about how conventional modern maps have has, uh, eclipsed Zuni knowledge of place by putting new names either in English or Spanish and disregarding the original names, which have an important reason for being called something. I'm so happy to be with all of you here today. What a special thing to come together to learn. Um, Thank you so much to the Nahani family for their beautiful welcome to their territories. 
Because I'm speaking to you about decolonization today, I couldn't begin without once again recognizing that not only are we on the territories of this beautiful family, but we're also on the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations territory. And although that's become a really um, common thing to acknowledge in Canada, that you're on someone else's territory, what often goes unsaid is that those are unsurrendered and occupied territories. So some of us might be here today as guests, um, and some of us have found our way here in other ways, but ultimately um, we're on someone else's territory, and so I really invite you to think about what that means as we dis dis um, explore this idea of decolonization. And um, as a decolonial educator, I get to have a lot of really interesting conversations with people, often really difficult conversations. But to my surprise, one of the most difficult conversations I have, one of the most difficult questions that I ask is if people can name the territories and nation on whose lands their grandmothers were born. And for a lot of settler Canadians, this is a really difficult question to answer. And it's also one that brings up a lot of pain. And that's where I want to start this conversation today, is around this um, notion of colonization in relation to historical amnesia. Because although it's become a common theme in Canada that we talk about intergenerational trauma for Indigenous people, one thing that's not talked about is the intergenerational trauma that's also had to happen for settler people to be complicit in such a violent history. And in order for us to know where we want to go together, we need to know where we are, and for us to know that, we need to know where we've been. So I'm just going to speak briefly about the history of colonization in Canada, but I really want to emphasize this is a global phenomenon. There's not a single corner of the world that colonization hasn't been enacted upon. So whether you're a settler Canadian, whether you're a visitor, whether you're a newly landed immigrant, this applies to you. And if you want to learn more about your own particular history, just go home and Google colonization and your nation, and you'll see a long and violent history. But for today's purposes, we're just going to talk about colonization in Canada. And so one of the most common things that people are really aware of in terms of our colonial legacy in Canada is that of residential schools. However, what's often left out of that conversation is the fact that those residential schools were in effect for over 150 years, that the last residential school did not close until 1996, that the mortality rate in those residential schools was often around 50%, that the Canadian government intentionally used the subjects of those schools to test the impacts of starvation on human bodies, as well as the impacts of electric chairs. The creation of the RCMP was, in fact, to remove children from their homes in order to bring them to these schools, as well as to police Indigenous people to, to remain on the lands that were designated to them as reserve lands in their own home territories. And finally, this legacy resulted in the kidnapping of over 150,000 children. And that's just the children themselves that were removed. And that's not even talking about all of the generations that were implicated because of the horrible abuse that went on in these schools. So the other forms that colonization took in this country were that of biological warfare, intentional, systematic biological warfare. 90% of some of the First Nations in British Columbia were wiped out at a time when a vaccine for smallpox was available and, and well used among settler Canadians. 
This is, um, I think, one of the most powerful pictures that depicts the history of colonization in this country. Another strategy that was used to clear people from the land and force people into submission, into capitalism, into living on reserves, was the intentional extinction of keystone species like the buffalo in the prairies. But this happened in the north with sled dogs. It happened in the east coast with different fisheries. And so this strategy of extinction to force people into submission is part of our colonial history in Canada. So this means that if you're more than a first-generation Canadian, this is historical bystander trauma that your parents and grandparents have lived through and that, in fact, also lives in you. And I really want to dispel this myth today that decolonization is the work of Indigenous people. Whether you have ancestors that were colonizers or colonized, we are all colonized people. And so this work of decolonization is really work that we need to come together to do with one another, equally accepting our roles, our locations, our privileges, in ways in which we can start to move towards a future that looks like healing, that looks like justice, that looks like dismantling systems of oppression. So I'd be very happy if I could say that this historic colonization is where it ends, but unfortunately that's not the case. Today, colonization in Canada looks like the fact that we're here occupying someone else's territory. Well, there's never been treaties made, or, or honoured at least on these territories. Um, it looks like over 4,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in this country a number that keeps on rising despite government promises of an inquiry or an intervention. It looks like common practices such as the apprehension of, of Indigenous babies when they're born by child and family services if their families are deemed unfit by the state. It looks like over 200 First Nations who live without access to clean drinking water and other forms of infrastructure that almost every other Canadian feels entitled to. And finally, it looks like the ongoing poisoning and removal of Indigenous people from their traditional lands and territories for resource extraction processes like the tar sands and like one we're all probably very familiar with right here, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. <clears throat> I work with a lot of settler people who really want to do something about this, but they don't know where to begin. And they feel paralyzed with guilt and shame about this truly ugly history that we've all found ourselves in. And so if I could just leave you with one message today, it would be this. This history is not your fault, but it absolutely is your responsibility. What happened, what has been done, is not your fault. But where we find ourselves here together, whether we're Indigenous people, whether we're settler people, whether we're somewhere in between, this is work that we need to pick up we need to have the courage to look at our past. We need to have the courage to look at where we are now. And we need to work together to figure out how we can collectively heal moving forward. I think it's really important to make the distinction between indigenization and decolonization. As Nigel mentioned, I had the incredible privilege of working on um, the Viceland documentary series Rise. And in that role, I got to work with indigenous communities in every continent of the world. And I want to give a shout out to all the indigenous people on earth because the work of indigenization, the work of linguistic revitalization, the work of ceremony, the work of land-based practice, the work of land-based defense, indigenous people are holding it down. 
And that is work for indigenous people to do. That is not work for anyone else to pick up and start to appropriate and call their own. However, decolonization is work that belongs to all of us. Decolonization. We are never going to go back and erase the past. It has already been done. But what we can do is we can start to put spokes and wheels of oppression, of movements that create our, our social systems of inherent inequity. And to be totally honest, if you wanted to just be motivated to do this for selfish reasons, that would be good enough. We're looking at a state of global climate catastrophe. We're looking at mass migrations because people can no longer inhibit their homelands. And these are all ramifications of a colonial and capitalist worldview that eradicated a balance, a sense of reciprocity, a sense of spiritual connection to our homelands. And so if we continue forward without acknowledging the indigenous people on whose lands and territories we live, we're headed for, for certain, certain disaster. One of the biggest gifts I've ever been given in my life is the gift of my own prophecy, the Mayan prophecy, which speaks about this time particularly on earth. And it teaches us that this is the time for the first time in all of human history that our consciousness have come to a level of evolution where we can actually see from one another's eyes. The way that it's explained is that the eyes of the serpent can see through the eyes of the eagle. And so the eyes of the north and the eyes of the south can actually see through one another's eyes and begin to work together and understand each other's worldviews. And the secondary part of that prophecy is that absolutely every person who came to be alive on earth at this time came for a specific reason and came with specific gifts that are needed to do this work that we have laid out in front of us. And I really believe that. And that's why I really want each of you to pick up this work of decolonization as your own because we need you. Whether we like it or not, colonization is a messy and shameful history that connects us all. Here we are all in this room together. So what do we do moving forward? When people ask me, what can I do to decolonize? I give them a caveat and I tell them, well, that's not going to be a, a, a one answer. It's not going to be a one day fix. However, I can give you a few first steps because if you do your work, then we can come back together and collectively do the real work that needs to be done. So if you want to go home today and start to enact your journey of decolonization, you can figure out how to answer that first question I said to you. Where do your people come from? How did you get here? Learn whose land you live on and what has been done to them in order for you to occupy their lands. Address the oppressive systems and history that enable you to occupy the territory you do now. Find out how you benefit from this history and activate one strategy wherein you can use your pr privilege to dismantle that. And share this knowledge, share this conversation with your barista, with your babysitter, with your Tinder date. I don't care. But I want you to have these conversations. And I promise you, when you start to have these conversations of looking at a longer now, of asking the history of people, your world will suddenly become a lot more interesting. And so will your identity. Finally, what's it all for? Why should we do this? Well, because decolonization looks like living without paralyzing guilt and shame about who you are and the social identity you've inherited. Decolonization looks like giving up social and economic power and privilege that directly disempowers, appropriates, and invisibilizes others. Decolonization looks like smashing the patriarchy. <laughs> 
Decolonization looks like doing the work to find out who you are, where you came from, and committing to build communities that work together to cr collectively create a more sustainable and equitable future. And finally, decolonization looks like celebrating who we are and connecting with the unique knowledge, with the unique knowledge that we each bring to this time and that we need to solve the problems that are laid out in front of us. So it's really easy, um, to think about our future ancestors because we have such beautiful little ones in the room. Good reminder. Thank you so much for opening this space today. But I really invite you to look back and think about your grandmothers that I asked you about and take a moment to look forward and ask yourself what you can do in your lifetime, what you can do today and in your work and with your passions and with your gifts to start to dismantle a history that none of us should be proud of so that maybe we can offer an inheritance for our future an ancestors for not only a planet that's livable, but a social system and community that's equitable and just. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Laura Flanders show, which spoke with Edward Villanueva about decolonizing wealth in the philanthropy industrial complex. Native America Calling also spoke with Edgar on that same topic. Tiny Spark looked at decolonizing the internet, specifically Wikipedia. Native America Calling discussed decolonizing maps. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Nikki Sanchez explaining why decolonization is for everyone. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's James out of uh, Sacramento, California. Uh, love you, my brother. I love the show. Um, it's my favorite podcast. I sure hope you don't go away. You had uh, a few shows back mentioned the subject of depression. Very good topic. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, there's 20 million people who suffer from it in this country. Um, I myself uh, have dealt with medical depression for many, many years. I recently found a good med for me for myself. I know that one of the biggest problems, of course, is the neoliberal nightmare we're all living under, um, or as I like to call it, hyper-capitalism. You know, you can't bring up that subject, and I'm only telling you this because, and I hope you play this on the air, because it might save a life. So I've read that it's okay to talk about this subject openly, because it won't it, it won't encourage it. Um, you, if you're going to bring up depression, you got to bring up the subject of, possible, of, of people taking their own lives. 30,000 Americans do that every year. And uh, I want to tell my story because uh, I'm, I'm hoping I might save a life. I had thought about doing so. I talked to my psychiatrist. He said, you know, first I, I tried uh, hotlines. That's what people always tell you to do is call hotline. You know what? They didn't work for me. So I want to give people two other tools they can use in case they're feeling desperate. Number one, he said, go to the local emergency room if you're feeling that way. And uh, also number two, call 911. I recently, about a year ago, did a stint in, uh, you know, when I was thinking about uh, doing that, I went to, uh, to the emergency room. I had a, a week stay in the hospital. Um, they finally gave me a medication and it's made all the difference. So there is hope for people. And another thing, a counselor told me there's an 80% chance anybody with depression can recover. I want everyone to know that because, you know, and to hold on to that. All right. Uh, please play this. Uh, um, just to save American lives. Bye. 
Hey, Jay, it's Chris in San Diego. I really loved that last show about the wealth tax and all of that. The number was, I think, 1319. I think part of the reason why wealthy people hoard their money is for the children's sake, at least the ones that I I think have children and, and that, that care about them. Wealthy people just naturally want their children to benefit from the financial position they have. But what would happen if they actually asked their children about it? Some of the children, at least, might re reply to their parents that they should just do the right thing, unless the children have drunk the Kool-Aid that Reagan mixed up about economics, or unless the children think it's okay to start life at the finish line and they don't realize that their special privilege as wealthy children in this society is predicated on slavery and oppression. I love the segment on big donor Democrats now having to put their true face out front. I wish that was more widely pointed out. I'm giving you a check-in on my life since you were kind enough to check in on yours. I'm now volunteering on the Bernie Sanders campaign. There is a strong organization building here in San Diego, and I decided to put my time and energy where it's most needed. A small thing, but you get the idea. Anyhow, real good shows. Keep taking those vacation days. You've got to stay on the sunny side. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Quick response to Chris, who we just heard. I completely agree that wealthy people think that passing on lots of wealth to their kids is good. I, I, and I agree that they think that they are doing something good and supportive for the kids by setting them up for success by the standard that they understand success. I completely disagree that it is a good thing. I, I think that giving too much wealth to a kid is practically child abuse. You know, like Chris brought up the idea, like if you ask the, the kids, you know, probably adult children of wealthy people, do you want this pile of money, understanding that it stems from oppression of others, or would you rather it go to taxes that serves the common good? You know, like kids may say, hey, no, no, do the right thing. Like, I don't need that much help. I'd rather go out on my own. To me, that's not even the way to look at it. Like, that, that's a perfectly good way to look at it. A better way to look at it is when children are given too much money, you know, even when it's doled out, you know, when you turn 18, when you turn 21, whatever, which by the way is very paternalistic and, and creates a whole other creepy dynamic about, okay, you're an adult, but as your much older parent, I'm still going to dole out this money to you slowly. So there, there's the, the paternalism that creates a weird dynamic, but giving kids a lot of money is horribly detrimental to a, a kid's development and and you know ability to 
strive for things because like when, when you're given things your whole life or when you just know in the back of your mind, like I can't possibly fail, they just know I'm going to be sitting on so much money that if I wanted, I could sit around the pool all day for the rest of my life. Like that's a horrible mental position to put someone in and then expect Okay, now go out and like do something good with your life. Go and use this wealth and power wisely. Like you're 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 setting kids up for failure, and uh, I, th- I think everyone listening could probably list half a dozen children of rich people who who turned out um, demonstrably worse for having been given all the wealth they were given. Um, yeah, I, I think we could all do that pretty quickly. And, and I've heard plenty of actual children of rich people explain their predicament and explain that, no, it's actually really difficult to be self-motivating when you know you don't have to be. So, I, yeah, I, I think that rich people building wealth with the idea in the back of their mind that I'm doing this for my kids is unbelievably misguided. But I, I, I'm going to move on. I have one more thing I want to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to be taking a vacation for the holiday week coming up, and, and I, I want to leave you on this note. I, I've been talking over the past month or so about the financial situation of the show. I've been put in a situation by my advertising broker that you know they want to follow the path of capitalism and track and spy on the habits and and uh, the data of listeners of podcasts so that they can target ever more precisely advertisements which honestly if it's going to be profitable for anyone it's going to be profitable for the advertising companies because they're going to be able to cut out some of the targeted advertising that doesn't work out so well. So they're going to be able to save money. That's going to hurt publishers like me. So I'm not on board for all the reasons, you know, it's, it would be, uh, probably hurtful to me and definitely hurtful to you and your privacy. So I'm not going to go along with the deal. Uh, the trade-off though, is we're going to lose a lot of money come the new year. And, and so I've been pitching this, rolling membership drive asking that, you know, if if you appreciate the show, if you appreciate that I don't want to spy on you to advertise to you more effectively and recognize that we need money to run the show, uh, then I've been asking people to sign up on Patreon, even if it, you know, a couple of bucks a month, six bucks a month is, is the membership level where you get all the bonus content. Or if you want to support more, uh, I, I appreciate that, of course. And, and so the context, that's the context for this comment that I got, uh, recently. Um, Maverick wrote in, he's one of the most recent supporters on Patreon. And, uh, and Maverick wrote this, which really resonated with me. And so I want to talk about it. He says, I had qualms about supporting the show since it is fundamentally a content aggregator and I'm not supporting the original content. Frankly, I haven't really resolved that in my mind yet, but I decided I do want to support the hard work that goes into the phenomenally distilled episodes. Love the work you do. And, and this really struck home with me because I had this same conundrum for years after I started making this show. I thought of myself as, as he describes it, fundamentally a content aggregator. And I had a hard time 
even asking for support or or thinking that it was ethical to put advertisements in the show, for instance. And it, it took years for me to understand the difference between content aggregation and what I do. And the difference is the word curation. And there's a huge difference between relatively, I think of the word aggregating as being relatively mindless. And what I do, curation, is far more akin to, I mean, I don't, it seems like a silly comparison, but like museum curators. The point of curating a museum is that there's practically infinite material that could viably fit in a museum. But the point of a museum is to present a story, not in its entirety, but in a way that tells a story and gives the visitor, a, you know, a deep understanding, a broad understanding as best as possible, but a coherent understanding. And that actually comes from not presenting too much because you can overwhelm a person and they really don't get very much out of it. You present the right material in the right way, in the right order that tells a story and, and brings enlightenment on a subject. And so, look, I'm not trying to break my arm, pat myself on the back and to comparing myself to a museum curator, but like in a very different context, in a very different way, that's what I do. I, I curate content that, you know, it, it should be understood that for every 55 minutes or so of audio content that goes in the show, I've probably listened to or between me and Joel, who helps sort through stuff, you know, Joel might have sorted through 15 or 20 or 30 hours of content looking for those diamonds in the rough. I sort through at least 10 hours of content for every episode and pull out just the stuff that is the right stuff that presents the right story and can be told in a way that brings enlightenment at the end. And so, you know, years ago, I, I don't talk about it on the show, but years ago, I sort of came to this new understanding of what I do. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. Like when, when you start a show as young as I did, I was 23 when I started the show. I didn't know anything about anything. And, and so you can start doing something like this and not even fully grasp what it is you're doing. And, and so I thought of myself as just sort of an aggregator. I'm just trying to present good stuff. And, and only later did I come to the realization about curation and the value that curation has. And once I understood the value of curation, that's when I began to feel a lot better about asking for support or putting ads in the show or, or anything like that, 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 that treating this show as not just another outlet for the original content creators and that actually the original content creators are the real value and, and that I'm not adding value. What I realize is, oh no, of course the original content creators are adding value. That That's as true now as it's ever been. And, and you know, the, the way I support them is by promoting them and, and have, I've, you know, I've heard from dozens or hundreds of listeners over the years saying that they have found 
the original content creators through me and that they now go and support those, you know, those shows. And so I feel great about supporting content creators in that way. But I also feel perfectly good in my own right to say that the work I do is valuable and deserves to be supported and deserves to be treated as an entity on its own that adds value far beyond what any individual content creator could provide because of the nature of curation. So thanks to Maverick for leaving that comment. It it brought these ideas back to me and made me realize, hey, like Maverick's having this thought. I had this thought. Of course, other people are having this thought. So if you are being held back in any way from supporting the show at this particular time of need we are in, I thought now's a good time to to explain how I see the show and why I think it's valuable, why I think I bring you know value to the conversation about progressive news and politics. And now after having heard me explain it that way, if you feel the same way, then you know maybe it'll help you decide to chip in. So now, as I said, I'll be taking a vacation over this holiday week coming up, but you will be seeing things in the feed. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm going to be putting the Native People series in the feed in case you want to binge through it or, you know, if you missed any of them, I'll make it easy for you to find them. And there will be another bonus episode that I'm not going to tell you what it is right now, but it's something that I think you're definitely going to want to hear. And so look for all of that in this coming week. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now for today's news by Limerick, which could not be more perfectly situated after having just talked about the downfalls of being born to rich parents. But I also want to emphasize that this story, which you may not have heard, is par for the course. This happens all the time. The New York Times reports that the Republican National Committee spent nearly $100,000 on copies of Donald Trump Jr.'s book. And I say this again, this happens all the time. I've been hearing about this phenomenon for as long as I've been paying attention to politics, and it's not just the RNC, it's other conservative, usually nonprofit organizations funded by mega donors whose whole purpose in life is to elevate conservative ideas, even if it means throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at book sales to artificially inflate them so that conservative ideas look like they're mainstream when they're not. That is exactly the purpose. So whether it's the RNC or like Koch Brothers-backed organizations, they buy their own books and then just, I don't know, pulp them, I assume, 
it happens all the time. So at Limericking writes, Don Jr., the president's lad, fell upwardly much like his dad, whose RNC chums inflated the sums of sales of Don's book, which is sad. <laughs> 